All right, all right. Well, hey, this, this morning, this morning I want to spotlight how important it is um, that we, both as individuals but as a church family, how important it is for us to live with a clear vision of how big and how powerful our God is. Now, sometimes I know we do live this way, but sometimes I know we just kind of forget and we lose track of that and we don't live that way. And I think one of the reasons this matters so much is because when, when I live in a way that trusts God as big, then with that perspective, I'm able to follow him, to take risks when he invites me to do something bold. And when we as a church family live that way and trust that God is big and powerful, then even when we're not sure how things exactly are going to work out, we become willing to step out in faith together to, to go for it and see how it is that God will show up and meet us. But again, it's so easy um, for us as individuals and as a church even sometimes to just lose track and forget um, to live in a way where, where, where we know that the power, the faithfulness of this great big God who's always with us and who is for us. It's so easy to forget that, especially when it comes to taking risks or following a call he might put. And when we, um, when we forget how big God is, it's real easy for us to get stuck. And when we're stuck, when, when, when God does want to call our church to something bigger than we might be able to handle on our own, we think, wow, that's not from God. Or if God gives us some sort of vision to try something that's going to stretch us, maybe there was a time, and like we do sometimes in listening prayer, where God maybe stretches us and invites us to something, um, maybe even some of the stuff that he speaks seems kind of crazy and outlandish, but if we're stuck and we've lost sight of how big God is, then, then as a church, and this works in our life as individuals, as life uh, as well, um, then we can miss out. Because we forget, we don't see, we've lost perspective. And by the way, that's oftentimes how churches get stuck and stagnant and start to die. But what we want to remember is that our God is big. Our God is able. And this big God wants to invite us and is inviting us to partner with him in bringing his kingdom, his goodness to the lost and broken world around us. So let's pray as we get rolling. Father, I pray this morning, give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you are saying. Let any words that are coming out of my mouth that aren't helpful, let them just fall to the side. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and the things that we need to grab onto, the things that are from you, would you let those be the things that stick in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. All right, let's see here. I'm going to volunteer someone. Cody, you win. Okay, come on over here, Cody. <laughs> I needed somebody who was good at, you know, mathematics. And I'm going to have you take this back to your table. What I need you to do is, you guys remember Kool-Aid? Remember the Kool-Aid? I didn't even know. I was delighted. They still make these packets. Ooh, it's a little wet. Um, I want you to make, you're good at proportions, right? I figured. Okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to make that. You can't pour anything back into there. You have to make Kool-Aid proportionally in that little thimble. Got it? Okay, got have fun. You got about 10 minutes before. I, if you're done sooner than that, you know, just wait. I'll call for you. You guys believe he can do it? It'll taste right? Not a lot of confidence. Sorry, bro. All right. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, um, once upon a time, once upon a time back in the 1990s, I know that's going to be hard for some of you to think about here, um, there was this thing called alternative rock. Anyone? Alternative rock, right? Bands like Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Green Day, Foo Fighters, not the Christian band, sorry if that's, yeah. Uh, um, 
Any of you younger kids heard of these bands? A couple of you. Yeah, there we go. Gabe. Gabe has good parents. His parents introduced him to the good music, right? Um, so in the 90s, probably one of, I would say, the most anguished bands of these 90s alternative bands was a band called the Smashing Pumpkins. Yes, yeah, some of you remember, right? These cats were unique. <laughs> I guess they still play. Uh, they're a bit dark um, is an understatement. Um, but sometimes they did these really cool things. Like one time uh, after they'd sold a gazillion albums, they decided, hey, we are going to do a tour. We're going to fund it out of our own pockets in these 15 cities, 17 gigs. And all the proceeds from the tickets we are giving away to charity in that city. And they gave away, um, what was it, $2.5 million just in uh, less than a month of gigs to charities. Kind of a cool thing to do. Another time they decided in the summer of 1998, which is where we're going here, they offered to play free shows all summer um, in major cities across the U.S. But the only city that was nuts enough to take them up on this offer was Minneapolis, thank you very much, where I was living at the time, and so I went to this show. Now, the crowd for this free outdoor show, which got way out of control, it was estimated at well over 120,000 people. This is just a segment of this um, show right here. They went on and on, wider and deeper, Um, and and Minneapolis at the time was probably couple hundred thousand people, so there was no way for police or security to, like, actually handle this crowd. So, um, there we are, some opening bands played, and right before the Smashing Pumpkins went on, I decided that I was going to weave myself up closer to the stage, and so you see that red pole way in the middle there? I was closer than that, like, I just, like, kept going, but I lost my friends that I was there with, and, you know, back then, I know this is a shocker, but There were no cell phones, really, so we were lost, and, like, that was it. You're not going to find your friends. So I lost, and so um, lost them, and but I got as close as I could, and as I was waiting, because, you know, these bands um, don't really like to start on time. I guess that's not cool. So we're just hanging out. We're talking with just whoever's there, and I'm, there's a young lady over here. um, We're chatting, and then there's this huge guy, and the only way I can think to describe him is he looked like Shaquille O'Neal, but with massive dreadlocks, and, and I nicknamed him Big Dude. So Big Dude is this guy, right? So by the time the pumpkins went on, people were pretty amped up, and it was summertime. It was actually, I realized, 24 years ago today. Now, in Minnesota, it's not as hot as here, but it was hot and humid, and people had been in the sun all day long, and pretty soon mayhem broke out. People started pushing and shoving and pushing back and getting mad, and it was chaotic. And I got a little more nervous when that started happening because I remembered that two years ago at one of this band's shows in another town, um, somebody got crushed to death in one of these kind of pushes. And so when I got knocked over and could not stand back up because the people kept pushing over me, I started to panic. By the way, my mom doesn't know this story. She's over here horrified. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, mom. I lived, so here's the spoiler. All right, yeah. Now, suddenly, as I got run over and people were, I couldn't get up, this big hand grabbed me by the arm, pulled me to my feet. It was Big Dude, right? (laughs) And Big Dude wedged himself in front of me and all these people that were pressing to get toward the front. But when he turned around to face them, they all stopped pushing and sort of went around us. (laughs) It's really wonderful, right? And we saw that the 
the young lady we'd been talking to, she got knocked down as well. So we pulled her up and we tried to kind of hang on to him and enjoy this, but it was just chaos. And so the big dude looked at us and said, hey, you guys want to get the blank out of here? And we were like nodding, yes. He's like, all right, hang on to me. And big dude marched us sideways through this chaotic crowd and it parted like the Red Sea as soon as they saw him, right? And it was about a city block later that we were in the clear, but then he was gone, just gone, disappeared. Um, I I told this story once and somebody said, oh, do you think that was an angel that rescued you? Maybe, but he was smoking weed, so I'm not sure if that makes it less likely. I don't know, I don't know. But that was big dude. But I realized, you know, having big dude around made all the difference for me. I was instantly confident. My fear evaporated with with big dude leading the way. I was freed from that panic because I knew I was protected. I knew I was not on my own, all because big dude was right there with me. In fact, I can tell you this. If I were fully confident that a big dude was with me all day, every day, I think my posture towards, towards challenges and difficulties would be profoundly different. If I knew that big dude had my back all day, every day, dang, my life probably would be different. But he vanished, and I never saw him again. But the good news is our God is bigger than any big dude. And unlike big dude, we don't have to sweat whether or not our God's going to show up because when he calls us to trust him and follow him, our God always comes through. He always comes through. And we're going to look at the book of Josh, uh, of Judges today. And, and the book of Judges um, actually in the Old Testament tells the story of the people of Israel after their big God came through and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Yet by chapter 6 of Judges, where we're going to pick it up today, the people of Israel had big problems. It seemed like God was not there. He wasn't coming through. And we learned that they had forsaken God. They had forsaken Yahweh again. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and for seven years God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And we keep reading, and we see that they were brutal. The Midianites destroyed All the crops, all the food, all the livestock just left them desolate. Anytime something they would grow, the Midianites would come through and just wipe it out. So eventually, the Israelites cried out to God for help, and an angel of the Lord shows up. And we meet this guy that we're going to look at today named Gideon. We meet him in verse 11. Just read from the text. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oporah, not Oprah, sorry, Um, which belonged to Joash, the clan of Abizier. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Gideon replied, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the miracles that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out, out, out of Egypt? But now, the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan, it's the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. 
The Lord said to him, I will be with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Now let's just pause the story there for a moment. Um, So here in this part of the story, the angel says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, calls him mighty warrior, but Gideon's pretty sure there's been a mistake here. Like, uh, hero? (laughs) Mighty warrior? Like, who are you talking to? I mean, my clan's the most dysfunctional clan in my dysfunctional tribe, and I'm the lowest functioning person in my entire dysfunctional family. You got the wrong dude. And he's not too far off here. I mean, he is a mess. He's he's actually a coward. Um, That's what that whole thing in verse 11 is, where it says he's threshing wheat in a wine press. It seems like a weird, insignificant detail, but there's no such thing. But a wine press is this little pit. It's sunk into a hard ground. But when you're threshing wheat, you're supposed to do it out in the open, where the wind can separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, And so if you got to have some space if you're going to do it right, and it's hard to hide if you're doing it right. But he's trying to hide, so a wine press would be a terrible place to try to thresh wheat because you could only do a little tiny bit of it in a stone pit at a time. And this is where this comes in right here. It'd be kind of like, like you guys know how to make Kool-Aid, right? I was so delighted that Walmart still carries Kool-Aid packets. I had no idea. And then I remembered first service, Kool-Aid in church, probably not. Thank you, Jim Jones. But uh, here we go anyway. Um, I know. Isn't that terrible? I did not think of that until, and none of you did either, I guess. All right, I should have not have said it. There you go. That's how easy it is if you're making Kool-Aid right, right? Not too tricky. Even Doug can make Kool-Aid right when it's done right. But come on, Cody, let's see what you got here. There we go. See, threshing wheat in a wine press is kind of like making Kool-Aid in a thimble. A thimble. I'm not lisping. That's really how you say that word, a thimble. Let me try it here. Oh, that's awful. Oh, thanks for trying, though. We love you. Thank you, Cody. But, I mean, that's the whole idea. It's kind of ridiculous, right? It's as ridiculous as trying to make Kool-Aid right in a thimble, threshing wheat in a wine press. But the reason we get this detail is because it gives us an accurate description of of what Gideon is like. See, Gideon is not some superhero. He's not a big dude with any degree of swagger. If there was a movie made about Gideon, he would not be an action hero portrayed by, you know, here we go, Jason Moma or The Rock, right? You would not have Dalton starring as Gideon. That's just not how it would work. Um... In fact, I think the character that we would want to picture and have in mind when we try to imagine who Gideon is during this story here, here's, here's who works for me, Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> All about Napoleon Dynamite. Now, some of you, you know, from a different era, maybe if you watch TV in the 2000s, you might want to think of Urkel. Yeah, or if you're in the 90s from uh, Seinfeld, we got George Costanza. Or those of us who grew up with kind of black and white TV, here's a good one. Imagine Barney Fife, Okay. Barney Fife, Gomer Pyle, something like that, right? If, there you go. But let's go back to Napoleon Dynamite. When you picture, you know, Gideon, he's not a superhero. Think of Napoleon Dynamite, and I think we're on the right track. He's scared. He's timid. He's insecure. He says, God, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the weakest in my family. Even Kip and Grandma could whoop my butt. Gosh. I just, if you know the movie, hopefully that worked for you. You're welcome, Tony. But... 
despite all of that, God persists in patiently just calling and encouraging Gideon, building his faith, confirming that he needs business, that he wants Gideon to answer God's call on his life to defeat the Midianites. Now, we don't have time to read through every detail of the story, so I encourage you to read through Judges 6 and 7 because it's fascinating how much there is to this story. But let me summarize this. Um, Next thing that happens is Gideon says, all right, give me a sign. And by the way, I'm like, if an angel visited you, wouldn't that be enough of a sign? Like, I would take an angel visit. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Um, But nope, he needs another sign, and he gets it. And then after he gets the sign, they kind of do a test run of his warrior-ness. And um, what he's asked to do or what he's told to do is that he needs to, he needs to tear down an altar to Baal and Asherah, which, by the way, these were just, if you look at that kind of worship, um, it was very harmful, just um, awful, a lot of sexual stuff towards women, towards children. It's part of why it was so detestable in God's sight. And this was not an altar built by Midianites. This was an altar that the people of Israel had built. Worse yet, the altar that Gideon was called to tear down was built by his own father. Remember the dysfunctional family, right? Okay, so he's going to do this. He tears it down. And the next morning, the villagers want to kill Gideon for doing this. But his dad actually grows a spine and tells the mob to back off and leave Gideon alone. So apparently Gideon's courage is contagious. Next thing happens, verse 34 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. (laughs) Now we're talking, right? And wouldn't you think with that kind of, you know, spirit empowerment, he'd be good to go, like rock solid. Yes, I believe that God is big, God is faithful, and since God's calling me, God's going to come through, right? And actually, no, even with this Holy Spirit power, Gideon still needs more reassurance, which, by the way, is a little bit comforting to me. And maybe it is for some of you. Sometimes God's really clear about something, even fills us with the Spirit, moves us forward. We know he's with us, and then we get nervous. We get a little bit like, oh, really? Right? And I know that I can identify with that sometimes. We start asking questions. Wait, wait, what was that? Was that really God's power? Was that really what he said? Is that really the Holy Spirit? And that's what happens with Gideon. And so he's afraid. And the next thing he does in the story, again, I'm summarizing, he does the the fleece thing. Um, And if you know about this part of the story, Gideon says, hey, God, if you mean it, if you're really going to save us, I'm going to put a piece of wool outside. And in the morning, if the fleece is wet, but the ground is dry, I'll know that you're going to keep your promise. I can picture a guy going, okay, fine. Right. And he does it. And then Gideon knows he's pushing his luck. God, uh, don't be angry, but hey, can we do it the opposite way this next day just to make sure, you know, dry fleece, wet ground in the morning? Okay, God does it again. And I just want to mention, if you've ever been around church for any length of time, sometimes people talk about laying out a fleece before the Lord as a way of, you know, getting to know what God wants us to do. Sometimes people use this idea, and I don't have time to do a deep teaching about this and discernment and hearing God's voice. Um, But let me just point something out, since this is in the text. Um, Setting out a fleece, it's not seen as a positive thing, right? God had already promised Gideon he was going to do something. So this fleece was not an expression of trust. It's an expression of immature faith. It's not a way that we can try to manipulate God in some sort of superstitious way, um, which sometimes we do, you know. It's like the guy who's driving down the road, 
And he sees the bakery and says, all right, Lord, if there's a parking space in front of that bakery when I drive by, then I'll know it's your will. I'm laying this fleece down, your will for me to go in and have a donut. And sure enough, on his fifth time around the block, there's the parking spot, right? But in Gideon's story, God patiently does it. And I know he does that for some of us sometimes too. I'm just saying this is not the pinnacle of discernment to lay a fleece before the Lord. Um, but God is gracious and he, he does the fleece thing um, and he persists in, in encouraging and calling Gideon to finally answer this call that God's placed on his life to defeat the Midianites. And God graciously does all of this stuff in chapter six just to show, I believe, that God is greater and bigger than our insecurities and that we don't have to sweat whether or not he's gonna show up because when he calls us to trust him and follow him, our God always comes through. You know, I look at this chapter, and again, I think it's so interesting that in spite of the fact that an actual angel showed up, Gideon can't imagine that God's going to do what God says he's going to do. Like, I think this is an example of how Gideon started out with this dwarfed image of God, that God's not a big dude or a big God, that God is not big enough to rescue his people. That's where Gideon started. And I think if we're honest, we can all relate to this, can't we? Especially when we face a daunting challenge in front of us, we often don't see God for who he truly is. And so we dare not hope for change. We'd rather give in to resignation. We start to believe, you know, things are never going to change, never going to improve in my world, my life, <laughs> like my addictions, my failures, my relational dysfunction, my weaknesses. Eh, it's not going to change. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to settle for threshing wheat in the wine press. Or we look at our world around us and we say, you know, my neighborhood or our schools, our church, our country, our world, really the metaphorical Midianites of our day, they're really just too impossible to face. So my strategy is just to survive and hide out in the wine press. We find all kinds of ways to hide. Um, and so we hide because maybe of Troubles in relationships or at home or friendships. We hide because of troubles in our church family where we start to be robbed of confidence that God actually could make a difference, that our big God could actually come through. Especially when things get hard and you've been at it a while and your efforts start to seem fruitless or you watch people walk away, a friend betrays you. It's understandable. That we lose sight that God really is a big God and then resignation can soon settle in. We forget that God is with us, that he is bigger than all of our troubles. And when we forget that God's with us and that he's bigger than all of our troubles, we might as well hide out and just kind of bide our time, you know? Like, you know what it is? It's too hard. It's always been this way. I'm, I'm a nobody. Nothing will ever change. So why bother is the mindset when we live with a dwarfed, shrunken God instead of the big God who is. And that's for us as individuals, but as a church family, it could be tempting for us to minimize what God is calling us to as well. You know, we might be like, hey, you know what, really? Our little church family of a couple hundred people, and that's when everybody shows up. <laughs> but our little church family, he's calling us to take a risk in following Jesus and making actual differences in our cities, our neighborhood, and even in our world. Like he's calling us to, 
step out boldly and learn to love and serve people who are in need? I mean, come on. We're not a mega church with mega staff and mega volunteers and mega money. I mean, we don't, we don't have the staff to, leave all, to lead all that. In fact, we're, we're three staff members short. We are at half strength right now. Like, there's no way we could do any of that stuff. Or sometimes we'd be like, hey, I've seen the budget. <laughs> we don't have the finances to actually pull off something significant or to dream big about what God plans for us to do, maybe even with the back half of this church parking lot here that's all dirt right now. I mean, come on. Somebody might say, come on, Doug, haven't you paid attention to the challenges we've had just the past few years in our world? I mean, come on, listen, listen, as a church, we, we paid off the mortgage. Let's just celebrate that. And isn't it time to just hide out in the wine press and hunker down and try to survive? Yet as the story of Gideon continues, we are reminded that God is bigger and greater now, we do not have to worry whether or not he's going to show up because when he calls us to trust him, to follow him, our God always comes through. Let's look back at Gideon. Remember, beginning of the story here, the angel calls him mighty warrior. He's insecure, though. He says, no, 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 I'm not that. In fact, I'm, I'm not anything close to being a mighty warrior. But God responds with the patience and the grace that we see as we have just read it through, the Lord says to Gideon, picture the Lord saying to Gideon, this Napoleon Dynamite character, I will be with you. I will be with you. You will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man, which is going to take the power and grace of God. And by the time we get through chapter 6 and all the things I summarize, now we get to chapter 7, and now actually it's time. It's, it's go time it's go time. In fact, God's going to throw the wrinkles in now. Gideon threw the wrinkles in the last chapter, but God's going to throw in some wrinkles here. Check it out. Gideon gathered an army, 32,000 soldiers to go to war against the Midianites. But problem is the big bad Midianites, they have 135,000 soldiers. I'm no math wizard, but that seems to me to be a ratio of about four Midianites to one Israelite. Um, so I'll summarize these next passages here. I picture God coming to Gideon and saying, hey, hey, listen, they got 135,000 troops. You have 32,000 troops. Hey, Gideon, you've got a numbers problem. And Gideon replies, whoo, oh, thank you, God. Oh, whoo, wow, like I was so glad you noticed. I mean, right? Doesn't it? Four to one, that does not seem like a very fair fight, does it? Um, and God says, no, yep, you're right, that's true. It isn't fair because you don't even need 32,000. That's too many. The battle's my battle, so here's what I want you to do. You tell anyone who is afraid that they can just go back home, right? Because I've got this. So Gideon does that, and of the 32,000, 22,000 of the Israelite soldiers have a morale problem, and they run for the hills, <laughs> leaving an army of 10,000 soldiers. So now our ratio is about 13 Midianites to one Israelite. So God comes to Gideon again, and God says, hey, Gideon, we still have a numbers problem. And if I'm Gideon, I'd be like, hey, hey, well, thanks. You know, thanks, cool, God, we're good. I'm, I'm fine, it's all right. We don't need any more help, so just, you know, we're good, right? But no, God says, um, that 13 to 1 ratio ready, I want to thin out our team even more. And so the weird, one of the weirder stories in the Bible here, God has them all go down and drink water from the stream. Can you imagine 10,000 people drinking from a stream? 
And there were only 3% of them who lapped the water like dogs. So 300 out of 10,000, and that's who stayed. So check this out. It goes from an army of, what is it, 33,000 down to 10,000, and now we're down to 300. And by the way, on this little part of the story, when I was growing up, I remember being told something like, hey, maybe the ones who lapped like dogs, they were better prepared as fighters. But actually, that doesn't fit with the context of the story. Because first of all, in the Bible, whenever somebody was compared to a dog, it was an insult. Like, they didn't have dogs as pet and love dogs like we do today. But it was an insult to compare someone to a dog. And if that's the case here, and I think it is, then the lapping water like a dog would mean that these guys were kind of the dorks. They were awkward. They were clumsy. They were not the best of the best. They were not the Navy SEALs or Army Rangers. This was an army of Napoleon Dynamites, right? Army of Barney Fifes. Which makes sense because the whole reason God narrowed down the troops was to make sure that when the battle was won, that God and God alone would get credit for this victory. Again, go read the rest of the story in Judges 7 this week, but, but what ends up happening here, and I'll just summarize it, spoiler alert, here we go. Uh, the power and grace of God comes, and, and, and this army of 300 oddballs and rejects who were too dumb to be afraid <laughs> and too awkward to even drink water correctly, this army of Napoleon dynamites outnumbered by 450 to 1, God uses them, launches an attack, and wins a victory in a way that no one could deny that this had to be an act of God, that, 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 that the battle truly was the Lord's battle. And then Israel could see, oh, wow, Yahweh, our God, really is all we need. That our God really is greater and bigger than our weaknesses, our shortcomings, and we don't have to sweat whether or not he will show up because when God calls us to trust him and follow him, our God always comes through. He always comes through. You know, stories like this, are such great reminders of God's strength and, and power. Reminders that when God calls us, we have to remember he is for us. And so ultimately we have nothing to fear. And we get locked up with fear all the time. And I think that's a huge part of why the most frequent command God gives all through scripture when he calls anyone to something, his, his, his command is what? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because I, the Lord, your God, will be with you. And we have to remember that, especially when God calls us to, to do something challenging or to engage in fighting on behalf of someone who, who can't fight for themselves. Or if we have this impossible circumstance we think we're facing, God wants us to know that he doesn't intend for us to handle these things on our own. He is with us. In fact, it's not lost on me that, that in looking at this story, it seems like sometimes it's only in the face of impossible odds that we actually recognize our need for the grace of God to show up. And as long as we think we can handle stuff by our own resources, our own hard work, our creativity and ingenuity, we don't really need God's grace or anything miraculous to happen. And that's part of why I think God just loves to show off, right? To demonstrate his love and his care, to come through for us. 
to remind us that when we follow him, when we walk with him, um, it's his battle. It's his battle. And he's not looking for a fair fight. <laughs> he delights in taking an army of Napoleon dynamites to rout a massive army of brutal warriors. And when we remember that, what do we have to fear, friends? And that's a big reason why I wanted to shine this spotlight and remind us that our belief and trust that we do serve a great big God, that it matters. That, that when we live in a way that trust God really is real and big, then we are willing to follow him and take risks when he invites us to do something bold. See, when we as a church family live in a way that trust God is big, is powerful, even when we're not sure how something's gonna play out, we still are willing to step out in faith to go for it and see, see how God will show up for us. It's, it's something that's been a part of our church that we've done over and over again for, for over the past 20 years, long before I was here. I remember when I did come on staff uh, almost five years ago, um, and I've seen this time and time again. We have this team of elders. I'm one of seven, and um, many of the other elders are really smart business people, great with spreadsheets. And we would go in to meetings, and I'd go, I don't know how this is going to work. And whew, I'm pretty sure we're probably going to walk out of here and not do this proposal that's in front of us. But time and time again, these guys always had way more faith than me. It was amazing. I was always like, the pastor in the elder team is the one with the least faith. It really has seemed like so many times, just to be honest with you guys. Like Stacy Heimkees, Gary Boydston, Andy Carey, Brad Carlberg, uh, Lily, all of our elders. Joy is on that team now as well. And it's just been fascinating and fantastic to see uh, elders that we've had and the ones that we do Right now, Rick and OK as well, they just have so much faith and trust in following God when we believe God's spoken and challenged us that we can look at something and go, wow, that does look like a stretch. That looks pretty big. But if God's calling us to that, we're going to trust that he's with us and he's going to come through. We've watched him do it before and he will do it again. And I don't want to confine that just to our past and our history. I still believe that God still wants to call our church to something bigger than we can handle on our own. In fact, I believe, have a sense that God is preparing to give us more specific vision to try some things that are going to stretch us. And not with the goal of becoming a, a, a big, huge church and having a bunch of people. That's not our goal here at all. Uh, we want to partner with God in bringing his kingdom, bringing his goodness to our lost and broken world. Specifically, I believe he's asking us to listen and consider how is it that we're going to invest in our next generation, in our teenagers, in our children's ministry, in our kids. How are we going to do that? How are we going to cultivate and give opportunities to young adults who have the call of God on their life and need a good healthy, safe place to begin to learn and develop ministry gifts and skills that God has placed in and on them? And how are we going to help the young adults, this next generation, navigate uh, this complex world in a way that doesn't destroy their faith? Uh, I've been wondering, how is God going to call us to strengthen in our neighborhoods the marriages or the finances or the parenting of the people that live around us? 
I believe God wants us to listen for ways that he's calling us to, to walk with people who are experiencing brokenness and loneliness so they know they are not alone. And I think God's inviting us to listen and be attentive to ways that we will introduce new people to Jesus and more fully be this grace-based family where anyone can find and follow Jesus. How are we gonna do all that? I believe that Jesus has my ideas about that. <laughs> I think he knows. And so let's listen, let's trust, and let's keep following Jesus together as a community, as a church family, because that's how we roll around here. We trust in this big God, and when he calls, we say yes. Now, as we wrap up, I, I want to speak to want to move from speaking to us, you know, broadly as a church to speaking to us as individuals because I know there are people in the room, because there are every week, who are facing difficult situations. Maybe you're dealing with so much fear, sadness, pain, loss, confusion, addiction. Maybe you're facing a situation um, in your life where there's something in front of you and you know you got to take it on or hit that challenge and clear that hurdle, but you've been afraid and you're tempted to go hide. Maybe there's a dysfunction that's long held in your workplace or your family, and you know it's time. It's time to face it, to face the dissension that's being sown by someone and confront you know, the big bad Midianites, whichever way or however it lands on you. And whatever it is that you might know is the next thing that you're being called to face, I know that it's so common for there to be this little voice in the back of our head that says, well, who am I to take care of that issue or to even try to change that thing? I've blown it again and again and again. Or how am I supposed to help that person when my own family is just a mess and I've failed? No way. No, not going to do it. I'm just going to go hide out. And I believe, as I was praying for our time together, I believe that, that God wants to replace that whispering voice of defeat with a reminder of how God is with us and that he is so big. It's his battle. And if he's inviting you to face an impossible seeming situation, he's got it. He's with you. You are not alone. You are not alone. And when we remember that truth, Hope family, makes all the difference, makes all the difference. Our confidence in God increases. Our fear starts to evaporate. We start to know God's with me, so I'm protected. I'm not on my own. Whether this thing fails or not, I'm not on my own. He is with me. And I know that when I begin to more fully trust and be confident that our big God is with me all day, every day, <laughs> my posture towards these difficulties or challenges I'm facing, they, I've noticed it start to be transformed. I'm a work in progress. But I know that we can start being more and more confident that God's love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out. That our big God has our back all day, every day. And we can actually live that way. Because again, the good news is that our God is greater and bigger than anything we face. And we never have to sweat whether or not our God will show up. Because when he calls us to trust him and follow him, our God always comes through. It's his battle. You need not be afraid because our God always 
always comes through. Worship team, will you come? Friends, God is well aware of the individual, you know, Midianites in your life, your, your fears, dysfunctional family patterns, addictions, messy finances. He knows. He knows about the hurts and betrayals that you've endured from people that you trusted, who lied to you, people who stabbed us in the back. He knows. He knows all about your pain, all about your loss, your sadness. He sees it. And so many times we get fixated on it. And we're not called to ignore it. But I do believe God invites us to look up from that brokenness, from that defeat, from that despair, to look up and see more. To see our great big God. Trusting that God is working in our story. It's not over yet. Because in the battles that come in our lives as we follow Jesus, we can be confident that God's love never fails. We are never alone. His love never gives up and that our God always, always comes through. Will you stand with me as we pray and then sing? Father, thank you that you are indeed a a big God, that you have our back, that you always come through for us. When you call us and we're following you, you always come through. May we as a church family live with a bold, risky confidence in you, willing to listen for your call on us as a people, your invitation to us as your followers, that we would step out and love and serve the broken, the lonely, the confused, the hurting, that that hope would be the kind of family that is so confident in your power, in believing and trusting that you truly are a big God, that, that we courageously would fight the battles that you call us to. And then for every person here, for every worry or problem or challenge each of us is carrying or facing, I ask that you would impart a gift by your spirit in the hearts of each of us, where we would get a glimpse of your greatness, your power, your glory, your love. Thank you, thank you God for your care for each of us. And thank you that you always come through and that your love never fails.